0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Wai Tuhi Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Charles Graves' critically acclaimed The Breakthrough, Immunotherapy and the Race to Cure Cancer chronicles the path to what the 2018 Nobel Prize Committee recognised as our penicillin moment against cancer when they awarded the Medicine Prize to James P. Allison and Tasuko Honjo. Variously reviewed as fascinating and artful, deft, detailed, fascinating, Graber's medical thriller interlaces personal stories of patients and researchers as he tracks the journey to the cure and demystifies the science. This session is supported by the University of Auckland Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Thank you of course to the University of Auckland Faculty of Medical and Health Services for for Sciences, uh, rather, for helping make this possible. And of course, I'd like to take a moment to uh, thank the festival and its organizers. Uh, this has been a remarkable experience. I've, I've met so many fantastic writers, so many great readers, so many wonderful people, and been so impressed by uh, how welcoming Uh, you all have been uh, to me and everyone else Uh, it's a it's a spirit I've just come from the United States we need a lot more of that there right now Um, so I really if you would be willing to give yourself a round of applause if that's not too tacky I would really um, thanks also if I do it by myself I kind of feel like a performing seal up here and it's you know it's not it's not so great so uh, uh, you know the the uh, this is a a great remarkable title for uh, for a, a session and of course uh, the, the guys backstage said so uh, how how'd you do it yeah. <laughs> I'm explaining here uh, what I witnessed about those that that have done it uh, not all of it's not done there's still a lot to be done but uh, but it's a word that can be used and it's not a word that anyone involved in cancer takes very lightly um, so if I can uh, start with a, a confession, uh, I suppose the first confession is that uh, people don 't realize this about a book about writers you a, you, you carve out a, a life where you observe and you work on your words quietly in your cave alone um, and then you slip what you 've learned sort of under the door you know you send it off into the world and it blossoms there and it sort of it's because you 're not particularly great at going out in front of a massive crowd under the lights and, uh, and communicating off the cuff, live, and yet, then you put the book out, and all of a sudden, boom, here you are. So so, um, so, so that's the, the first confession. The second is that I really never thought I would write a book about cancer. Uh, it wasn't something that I had any special knowledge or interest in. I figured cancer, in fact, as a whole, was something that I would deal with when I had to. Um, and I hope not to have to, um, but personally, but of course it touches all of our lives. Um, Part of the reason for this was that the advances seemed so incremental, uh, the disease so inscrutable, uh, the notion of a cure always somehow beyond reach, um, hope was important, fundraising, science, all that, but it it just wasn't something I felt like I had anything to contribute especially to. Um, And that changed, the reason it changed, interestingly enough, is really because of New Zealand. And I'll explain what I, what I, what I mean by that. Um, backing up, as Anne explained, I'm not necessarily just a science writer. I wouldn't necessarily be writing a book about cancer no matter what, and I think it's perhaps important to give you a little bit of a sense of who I am and what I normally do, so you can understand that I wrote this book specifically because it was uh, the most important and interesting thing that I knew about. And it had a, a level of urgency in its communication. Um, but again, my, my background was poetry. I also then wrote for you know, National Geographic and contributing editor with Wired and all these other publications. So the other sorts of stories that I've done, usually it involves me going and making myself extremely uncomfortable by entering someone else's life a life I know nothing about, a field of expertise I do not have, uh, sort of hacking my way into this seemingly impenetrable thing and then fighting my way out and then telling you what happened and bringing you the report. So over the years, that's included all sorts of, all sorts of things. When I was early on, when I was really concentrating on, on my poetry, I found that if I basically jumped off a cliff, the poems were a lot more uh, better attended if you will, people, people would listen a bit more to your observations on, on life, and so I did a lot of adventure travel things. I dragged a rowboat up the Ganges from um, Benares to Allahabad, just you know, in a barefoot loincloth, um, you know, neck deep in a river that had a fecal chloroform count 300,000 times, what the WHO considers sanitary. It wasn't what I intended when I went, but that's what I ended up doing. Um, I. Drove a Jeep off-road from Canada to Mexico. I was with another bunch of guys that broke the Cannonball Run speed record uh, across the United States. Uh, All those were excuses to talk about the the geology or the science or the fuel efficiency or whatever. Each story is about something else. It was really always about story. Part of what I try to do is trick people, I guess you might say, but uh, that don't think that they could learn a thing, don't think they could know a thing, or don't even know they're interested in a thing into wanting to hear about a thing, into following along, to tell a story that happens to contain a lot of important, interesting stuff. Um, And a bit of science, a bit of magic, a bit of lesson, a bit of humanity. Um, Another one of those stories, as was mentioned, was when the most prolific serial killer in American history, who wouldn't talk to anyone else, uh, agreed to start speaking to me. But I began that because he was trying to donate a kidney from jail at the time and was being prevented from doing so, and I thought um, that that was wrong, despite what he had done, because it seemed really ironic that one innocent man should die another one uh, just in order to provide some definition of punishment for the eye-for-an-eye know, eye type type punishment, removing this man's liberties. Um, and in talking to him, I learned that as he'd moved from hospital to hospital over 16 years, uh, the places he, he worked had moved him out the back door and had uh, uh, given him positive or neutral recommendations and references so that he could continue to work, uh, making it someone else's problem. And so the book became a, a call to action. Um, so it was a, not just a salacious serial killer story. It actually was something you could do. Uh, there's something that was a, a call to action, if you will. Um, I also covered a, a, a story that really was about the largest global copyright violation case in history, and really looked at a lot of our uh, issues around our digital lives, which you all may be more familiar with. I came to New Zealand and lived under house arrest with um, uh, a very large German fellow uh, that you know and wrote that story and then continued to come back and forth covering it and, and looking at it in, in other ways. And It was on one of those trips back from New Zealand heading back to New York, I was seated next to a guy and usually I wouldn't talk to the person next to me, I'd go out of my way to avoid it in fact, but I for some reason didn't do that and we started to talk a little and he said, well, what have, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I was, he said, well, what were you doing there and I said, well, I was, you know, under house arrest with someone, you know, just didn't really, and he, and he said, oh, you're that guy, and it turns out he'd read all of my stories, he knew all about my, my stuff, and and so th- we got to talking, and about eight hours later, and you know, the, the mini bar stopped coming around, and and we, I, I said, well, look, I, w- this is what I know, what's the most interesting thing you know about, something I would know nothing about, because he was a, a PhD, biological sciences, and he said, well, what he told me, I will summarize this way. At the time, I didn't, I didn't understand it, but what he, what he essentially said was cancer tricks the immune system into not attacking it. It provides a sort of secret handshake, if you will, saying I'm cool, I'm a body cell, don't attack me. And it's the same sort of secret handshake, for instance, that is used by the developing fetus to, to not be attacked because it too looks different. And now that we've discovered that, we can block it and begin to block it, and look for more secret handshakes, and so forth. And I'd never thought about any of this before. Uh, It hadn't occurred to me. In fact, the question that I hadn't asked myself before was, why is it that I always know, we always know, I think, when we have the flu or a cold, uh, we have symptoms, right? We have have fever, or at least the sniffles. Uh, But with cancer, you need to test. And why, why was that? had never occurred to me before. But then again, I'd never even thought about writing about cancer before. So, so this question, why was that, led me uh, into an entire world that uh, I never, never could have imagined, a world of, of great complexity and great hope, uh, and, and what ended up be, being called the, the breakthrough. Because I, as I started to research this, I, I found out it, it was true. The immune system is actually spectacularly great at recognizing what shouldn't be in the body, and getting rid of it, killing it, in fact, we have uh, this five hundred million year old defense system uh, is is so good at its job uh, that we often don 't think about what it 's doing uh, in fact, we don 't understand the, the the great majority of, of what it does, and for some reason, it didn 't do it against cancer, and the reason why had been the explanation had always been is that. Cancer is too similar to normal body cells to be recognized by the immune system. So if I could just back up for a moment. The immune system, I, this is the sort of, the immune system is the most boring, if you're thinking about something you're, you're going to be writing about or describing, a system is a really boring thing to um, so write about. It. But this is not boring at all. This is, uh, and, and the book is written uh, sort of in the, the way that I'm, I'm speaking. It's obviously much better than the way I'm speaking. I hope, but it's written for everyone and then it's written again for specialists and then there are endnotes for people that want to go in certain directions and then there are different uh, references that you can take uh, to know more and more. So in speaking about the science, I use a lot of metaphors. It's necessary. And the thing about teaching the immune system, I've discovered, is that the metaphors are really helpful for a while, and then to get to the next level, you have to say, all right, remember that metaphor? Forget it. Forget that metaphor, it's now wrong, because there's this other layer of complexity that doesn't work. But for our purposes, we knew that there are at least two types of cells that, maybe, or three types of cells that, uh, in the immune system, three players that go around and take care of bad guys, things that aren't supposed to be there. And they recognize those things that aren't supposed to be there because they look different. And look different means really that the, the outside is different. You can picture this foreign cell some, uh, as having proteins all over, all cells as having these proteins that sort of stick out of it. From the inside and sort of like cloves on a christmas ham and the cloves that stick out of uh, of the foreign cells are different than the ones that are sticking out of your body cells and you have millions and billions and 10 to the 19th power of different types of immune cells that each of them can recognize one of those cloves and they're traveling around all the time looking for that one clove. That's their whole life. And most of them will never find it because most of those cloves don't exist. They've been sort of randomly generated to be able to account for anything, even things that don't exist yet, which is incredible and why it's so adaptive. If they happen to find that one clove, it uh, depends on which kind they are. They're, you've got these, what are they called, B-cells. They could be called Fred. Turns out all the names are sort of backwards and wrong. B-cells were so named because they... They come from the. They were first found in, in birds, and the bursa Fabricus, this organ that we don't have. They're also made in bones, but they're not they're not bone cells. They're so the names are. That's part of what's so confusing about this field, and what keeps people from understanding it. But they go around, and they they're sort of like Spider-Man. Uh, every time they recognize the bad thing, they sh- 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 without antibodies, and they gum it up, and that either makes it uh, it makes it really obvious, it makes it less mobile. Uh, being obvious signals these other cells. You've got these giant Pac-Man-like cells that are blobby things that come around and will literally engulf and eat. Um, they're, they're big eaters, and when they, especially when they see that they get really hungry. Um, and then you've got this other type of cell, the T cell. And we've all heard about the T cell. The T cell actually does kill directly. The B cell does not. And for a very long time, nobody thought there was such a thing as the T cell. Uh, which is which is incredible because under the microscope they look just the same as as B cells. In fact, uh, as late as uh, nineteen sixty eight, this was still really controversial. Uh, they just happened to notice that some of the B cells made a different journey and maybe did something different. Uh, and just to show you how resistant science can be to change, uh, I always think you always think of science as being somehow empirical and and correct and and, and not dogmatic, open to to data, uh, new data. But when at a meeting where this was first proposed, that there were two types of these cells. There are the B cells and these also other different thymus-derived cells called T cells. Uh, that person was publicly reminded at the meeting that B and T are the first and last letter of bullshit. So, but there are, they exist. Um, and these, these uh, despite that resistance, we now know there are the T cells. The T cells, they kill, foreign cells up close and personal. And again, a cartoon version of how this also works, uh, once that match happens, once they find their clove, or even a fragment of the clove, because you've shredded the ham and injected all those foreign cloves from a form of disease you expect to, to get or maybe encounter, and that's a vaccine, those little shreds are picked up and carried around by another type of cell that essentially makes them into wanted posters, activates your immune system to say, okay, this is what the enemy looks like, we should be ready for this, we better make an army against this one thing. The the cell, the immune cell that recognizes that one thing, clones up into a giant clone army, all of them looking for just that one enemy. And then if it arrives, you're ready. That buildup takes a few weeks, so if you're not prepared, you might be overwhelmed by the disease, and now that's that's, vaccin- that's how vaccination works. That's basically how immune response works. And yet it didn't work for cancer. And the question, again, was why? And the answer had been, for the previous 100 years, at least the, the, the widely accepted answer, was that it, it couldn't. It's that because cancer is us, it's too similar, the cloves are not different enough, too many cl- cloves in common, and therefore, it would be way too dangerous to have an immune system built to recognize something like that. Because the most dangerous thing in your body at any given point usually is you. Your immune system is far more dangerous than any disease you're going to encounter. As as we see with with autoimmunity, it would just wreak havoc like a like a you know rock and roll band trashing a hotel room. It just would. It's it's very very. It's, it would be way too dangerous. And so. The notion was, it can't see cancer, it can't kill cancer, and therefore trying to help it do so is a waste of time. And that was dogma. And just to make clear how recently that was dogma, is anyone here familiar with the the wonderful book, The Emperor of All Maladies? Uh, History of Cancer came out in 2010, paperback is 2011, still out. It doesn't mention the immune system or cancer immunotherapy once. So this was still widely taught against, not considered valid or possible. It turns out to be wrong, dead wrong. What we now know is that cancer can be recognized by the immune system. Cancer, backing up again, what is cancer? Cancer is us, gone rogue. And you'd think that would be really uncommon or unusual, Uh, but in fact, while I've been speaking, we've all gotten cancer several times over, probably. And our immune systems have actually recognized that cancer, hopefully, and killed it, hopefully. The idea here is that your cells are constantly replacing themselves, sort of like you could think of it like leaves, old leaves being replaced by new leaves. And in fact, the, the Greek term for that, apoptosis, means exactly that, of falling off like leaves. In fact, this is so common, it happens so frequently, it's so necessary, that you shed a full body's weight of dead cells every year, which is why you need to do more dusting in your houses. Just when you go to bed tonight and you just will realize, oh, that's what all the stuff in the air is. That's right. It's me. Um, And that process, you'd think it would be really precise. I always imagined it was incredibly precise before I waded into this, and it's not. In fact, it's anything but precise, it's a total mess. Uh, it, it makes mistakes all the time. And that, of course, is, when you think about it, necessary and inevitable if we, were going to be, if we are evolved beings. So for, we are essentially only here because of mistakes. We are a series of mistakes that worked, right? And you can't have evolution without, without those mistakes. So sloppiness, messiness, mistakes are actually built into our very being. And so, in a sense, cancer is built into our being. Cancer is the mistake that works, but it doesn't work with us. It works against us. It's able to evade the immune system successfully somehow. We'll get into that. It gathers its own blood supply, its own nutrients. It replicates without end. It's greedy. It doesn't die off. It doesn't want to go. And eventually, it crowds out everything else, travels around, takes over, and that's it. Unchecked. So the breakthrough discovery, the big discovery, the reason this book is called the breakthrough, the big deal was that we now realize, we've recognized that what this uh, that I just described to you, that those tricks are being employed that the immune system can recognize your own cells that have gone rogue, that this is possible. It was considered impossible. There was uh, however Just because there were some people that had the theory that it was possible, didn't mean that anyone could prove it. Uh, So for 100 years, we've been treating cancer pretty much with cut, poison, and burn. Cut has been around for 3,000 years, you can read about it on papyri. Burn came about as soon as radium was discovered, in fact, within six months of radium being discovered at the turn of the century, the last one. was very successful at killing cells, bombing them. Uh, it of course wreaked havoc on everything else, and those early uh, radiation treatments were were horrific for everyone involved, including the doctors and technicians. And then poison is of course chemotherapy, which is a byproduct of the chemical warfare department. It came about in 1949. So what we've been doing because we don't we can't use this. Beautifully engineered, 500 million year old defense system. Can't figure out how to turn it on or make it work or whatever. We just keep pressing at it and poking at it, and nothing happens. We've been treating cancer like a like a monster. It's it's Godzilla, essentially. You know, we just we bomb it or try and cut it out or or poison it. Uh, and the idea is is kill Godzilla without killing Tokyo. And we've been making ourselves ourselves sick for. Uh, for a very long time in doing that and fundamentally misunderstanding uh, the nature of cancer. However, over the past 100 years, that's been relatively successful. You know, we'll have 18 million cases of cancer um, diagnosed this year, probably. And roughly, at least to give you statistics from the United States, roughly half of those are treatable by the cut, poison, and burn method. And to to that, I'd I'd add starve, um, targeted molecules. Which is an incredible thing and, and wonderful, but in the in the U.S., for instance, that still leaves six hundred thousand people a year. It leaves a great number all around the world. Um, certainly true in New Zealand, where I understand we, we have a, a cancer rate. Some for men, it's almost fifty percent of men will be diagnosed within their lifetime here, which is the highest in the world. So we really had no other options. Um, we we. We didn't know what to do about it, uh, and we were stuck, and anyone that thought differently was really ridiculed. Cancer immunotherapy, that is treating cancer with the immune system, was fundamentally different from all those things. It didn't deal with cancer at all. It was really about the immune system, and making that distinction is really an important point in this book. Um, It just seems like another drug, another poison, another toxin, another way of starving it. No, it's very different. The idea is the immune system can do the job. You have to unleash it. The question was how. Nobody knew. Nobody knew if it was even possible. But for thousands of years, uh, there have been stories. And in this case, in my book, in the story of immunotherapy, these stories matter. There were always these stories of, of what they called spontaneous remissions, where cancer, which you could do nothing against, would suddenly somehow reverse itself. It would melt away. It would disappear. Uh, they were considered miracles. The 13th century St. Peregrine was one such miracle as now that commonly known as the patron saint of cancer. The cancer erupted uh, through the leg of the tumor, uh, b- burst the skin, uh, fever ensued, and a miracle cure happened. Something similar happened 100 years ago, uh, and that's really where I start my book, uh, which I have to say almost wasn't a book. Just to make clear how revolutionary this is, how, how recent uh, and and different this way of thinking about cancer is. Uh, so it was four four year and after four and a half years ago now that I first had that conversation that I was describing to you on the plane, I looked into it. I found out well this this was true. In fact, there there, there have been these discoveries. There are these sort of handshakes and blocked handshakes. And, um, it was all science reading. Uh, I really hadn't heard of it. I, I thought for sure if this was true, I would have heard about it. Uh, it just seemed you know life-changing, uh, revolutionary. And I spoke to my agent, who was kind of pounding the table about my next book, because that's what I do for a living. And I had been looking at all sorts of things, and I was really being bothered by this, by this, cancer immunotherapy. I just said, well, and I explained this whole thing to her, and she said, wow, that's incredible, but I've never heard about it. Are you sure that's really a thing? And I said, well, I, I mean, yeah, I think... I think it's I think it's going to win the Nobel Prize. I think it's going to cure cancer. But I don't, you know, I'm not I just started on this. I don't really know. I, I I want to be really careful about this. Obviously, but just it's worth looking into. She said, "Well, look, my my father's a an oncologist who's retired oncologist. He's done lots of research as well. I'll, I'll ask him." And she came back to me and said, "Well, I, I asked him and he said, "Oh yeah, he's talking about cancer immunotherapy. We tried that. It doesn't work." So, that Sort of increased my interest frankly, in getting this book out, so we needed to find a publisher, which proved to also to be very difficult because the publishers had the same reaction. Well, this sounds fascinating, but if it was true, I surely would have heard about it, and i haven 't heard anything about this at all, so therefore it 's not true It' was kind of an incredible conundrum. eventually found a, a, a publisher my, my my previous publisher, and, and went to work on it and What I found in in researching this was that, you know, I I, I approached it cautiously, nothing could be uh, more serious, Uh, nothing I think touches so many people universally uh, than this disease. Certainly touches my life. Uh, My mother, over the course of writing this book, was diagnosed with two different cancers, which would make her second and third. Uh, Another friend, uh, is the same and and uh, uh, another friend uh, you know it, it it seemed to really show up uh, right as I was working on this and and what I discovered there are a number of things I discovered in 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 writing this book one thing that I discovered was that when people get this this a uh, diagnosis it 's the most terrifying time it's uh, time is of the essence, and they they really seek support of friends and family, they really sort of go to ground, uh, especially with familiars. And sometimes that means they go to ground with their local doctor. And depending on who their local doctor is, uh, they may or may not get the latest information, especially with something that's changed so quickly, and, and having access to the right information, not necessarily going to ground, not being afraid to ask for a second opinion, being empowered with understanding what cancer is, what immunotherapy is, what's available, what's happened, asking those questions uh, can make an enormous difference. Uh, can uh, And in, in this book, I tell those stories. I tell the story of of a man named Jeff Schwartz who really starts it. I I should warn you, if you haven't read the book, um, there's a lot of swearing. I mean, it's cancer for Christ's sake, so you know, you can do that, but you have to, Jeff Schwartz also did that, and I I painted him as as he was. And uh, his story was one of, of really a real chance because he received a diagnosis, he was stage four, was sent home to put his affairs in order, and he happened to talk to someone who, who said, seek this other opinion. Ended up in a clinical trial, ended up on one of the handshake blocker drugs, checkpoint inhibitor drugs, an anti PDL1 drug, it's called. And his cancer went away. The immune system, the light was turned on, it recognized the disease, it worked for him. Um, not everyone's that lucky, and I have to be, make clear that when we talk about curing cancer, I asked a lot of people, a lot of, I'm always the dumbest one in the room uh, whenever I do my research, that's my job. And I've checked pretty thoroughly. Can I, should I be using the word cure? I've never really heard any oncologist ever use that C word. And I was told, yeah, yeah, you, you should, we have cured. Cancer. We haven't cured all cancer, but we've cured a subset of cancers, and a subset of cancers in certain people. It's still in a minority of patients right now, uh, which means less than 50%. But for those who do respond, the we're not talking about weeks or or, or months. Uh, we're not waiting. We're not bombing uh, the the majority of the of the cancer away and hoping that one little cell doesn't get away and, and mutate away into something else because that's what cancer does. Uh, we're talking about durable responses, and it's, and it's been profound. Um, so I was told that was a, a, reasonable, a reasonable word to use, and so, and so I did. Um, my other challenge with this book, though, was how was I going to write a book uh, about this incredibly complicated subject, uh, this intersection of two super specialities that most doctors I knew really knew nothing about. Uh, my father is a professor of medicine. He knew nothing about it. Uh, and people had heard something, but it was, there was a lot of misinformation. It was incredible how, how what happened to so many patients that I, that I met in the course of writing this book and have heard from since publishing this book, uh, they all had the same story, which was I got lucky. And it wasn't just the, I got lucky because it worked. It was also the, I I got lucky because I happened to walk in this door and not that door. And part of the goal of this book is to make sure that you don't have to deal with that luck, that you know where where the doors are, that you know how to ask the questions, that you know that less than 5% of all patients end up in clinical trials. Uh, Many people are afraid to question their physician. They're afraid to go uh, somewhere uh, broader, more integrated uh, university system. they're afraid to, uh, to be a human guinea pig. They're afraid that perhaps there's uh, a placebo arm, that maybe they won't get the good stuff. Uh, there are no placebo arms in these cancer immunotherapy trials. Um, what's, what's happened is that it's not really the one drug or the two drugs or the handful of drugs that we've discovered because this is all so incredibly recent. What's being called uh, to me, and again, I just describe what I, what I found in, in my research, uh, a penicillin moment. In our war against cancer. It's not a matter of discovering penicillin, it's a matter of having discovered antibiotics. And those handful of drugs that have been discovered, the handful of handshakes, secret handshakes, um, the other, just switching metaphors, uh, other ways that we discover that cancer has been pressing the brakes, that it's built into T cells, that T cells have these brakes at all because they're so dangerous. Because if you didn't have, weren't able to check your immune response, that would be horrific. Uh, that would be a, a, a non-functional immune system. And, and we've seen diseases where that's the case. We now are able to better recognize them, in fact, because of this same research. But the recognition is, ah, there are breaks, There are fuses. There are tripwires. There are all sorts of things that cancer does, that cancer has evolved to take advantage of, built into our T-cells, built into our entire immune system. We weren't even looking there. When I, the, the stories I heard was that by the time cancer immunotherapy had its breakthrough moment when they, with this discovery of the breaks happened. Uh, there, were, there were really only a handful of cancer immunotherapists left. They were ridiculed, considered quacks and lunatics. And, and that takes me back uh, to the challenge of trying to tell this story. Um, and very happily, well, two things I want to say about that. One is that I decided to write the book. Uh, it's it's uh, in a series of layers. I wrote it so that you can read the first page of the, of the book, the prologue. It's this long, it's ten lines at the most, not a single science word in there, and you'll get the entire argument. Cancer evolves, it dances, it mutates. No drug dances and mutates. And eventually, cancer always will dance away. And As long as we try to cure cancer just with drugs, and poison, and burning, it was never going to work. It's not the way it works. In fact, anytime we are successful in chemo or radiation, it turns out that that has somehow alerted the immune system, ah, this is what you're looking for. Or it's weakened that disease enough that the immune system can chase down those few rogue cells. The immune system was always involved. The immune system ends up being like uh, the, the butler in a closed door mystery, locked door mystery, right? where you couldn't figure out what was happening, what was doing this, what's wrong, and it was just the thing that was always there, uh, that was not suspected. In fact, we now recognize that that's true of a whole number of other diseases. Uh, Some diseases of mind, uh, you know, multiple sclerosis, uh, 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 diabetes, it's really now suddenly aware of how the immune system works better. the best and the brightest now are are looking there. It went from a handful of people meeting in a moldy basement during these big cancer uh, conferences, you know, 30,000 people, everyone crowded into all the the new targeted molecules or poisons or whatever they were, and nobody taking the immunotherapist seriously because they couldn't couldn't do it in humans. They couldn't make it work. They could cure cancer hundreds of times in mice, one told me, but it, it really didn't work in humans. But as I mentioned before, they still believed because there were these glimmers. they described describing them as glimmers and glimpses. And in telling this story, it's really helpful. You know, if you will remember, I was describing these other stories I do where there's an adventure story, and an action story. There's something that happens that you can follow. You know, it, 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 I didn't want to write a textbook. I didn't want a book that people said, "I this is, you know, it, they, you have to, the message could be correct and impenetrable and it would be worthless. I wanted something, I wanted a thriller about this. And that's where I got lucky, and we all got lucky. I found that the story that, of something that happened 100 years ago, 130 years ago. Uh, it starts with a, uh, a young woman named Bessie Deschel in New York City, who thought she'd pinched her, her hand in a, in a Pullman car uh, seat, and came in to see the bright young surgeon who had just started at New York Hospital, a fellow named William Coley. And Coley took a look and did a, when it didn't get better, biopsied it and couldn't figure out quite what it was, and then it started to spread, and he had to start to amputate, and it got worse and worse, and he was at her bedside not six months later when she died. He was unable to do anything about this cancer, which is what it was. Kohli being young, and it being the late 19th century with Edison and Tesla literally inventing electricity and building competing power stations just down the street, and the steam engine being, the steam turbine being invented a, across the, the, the seas and everything. Suddenly, many things that had seemed impossible before seemed possible, at least they did to Kohli. and he thought there has to be some other way. There's, he refused to accept the dogma that the immune system, as far as I understood the immune system, that there was no other way. And so he went, looking back in the records, he went looking for one of those miracles, one of those spontaneous remissions, the, the, the magical unexplained cures that I'm talking about. And looking through the big dusty books where every patient that ever walked into that hospital was recorded. He found seven years earlier a German house painter named Fred Stein had walked in with an enormous tumor on his neck, it was operated upon, was not able to be fully removed, and the wound wouldn't clear, uh, it wouldn't close. And to compound Fred Stein's problem, he soon developed a fever. In fact, he he developed what they called St. Anthony's Fire, which was the bane of 19th century hospitals. It had been the bane of hospitals back through the, the Middle Ages, just because of the way it would roar through wards, usually decimating patients. It had been noted, though, for hundreds of years that occasionally... Uh, St. Anthony's fire would, like a fire, clear out other diseases from the forest in some of the patients. And this is what happened with Fred Stein. Instead of perishing from from his his, his infected wound and, and the spreading cancer, uh, instead of going the, the route of this healthy young girl that Coley had seen, seem, you know, seemingly healthy in every other way, his cancer essentially melted away in a series of, of fevers and recoveries. And six months later, Fred Stein walked out the gates of the hospital and back to the, the immigrant slum of the Lower East Side and was never seen again. And you know, this is kind of a wow moment, right? Um, Coe saw this and he made a, um, he, he made a, he had a conclusion about that or a hunch about that. that Interestingly enough, wasn't really repeated by that many people afterwards. Even though there were always these glimmers, there were always these cases. He he said, you know, that's not magic. And whatever happened to him, let's see if we can make that happen to other people. So the first thing I had to do was prove that Fred Stein existed, and this this is a this could be a separate book, um, except that I wanted you to get to the end of this one and and the modern times. But seeing this. Dandy young doctor traipsing around uh, the the Lower East Side that was documented in How the Other Half Lives. I mean, that was what the that where, that book was a documentation of, of those slums, knocking door to door using his 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 college German to look for uh, a, a disappeared house painter with a big scar on his neck. Uh, he that's that's what he spent his time with, and amazingly, he found him. He brought him in, confirmed that this was the same Fred Stein. Checked with the surgeon. Um, asked him, of course, confirmed that he seemed to be cancer-free, and he decided, Coley decided, right, okay, this is how we're going to treat this disease from now on. This may be the cure for cancer, and he decided to replicate the terrible fevers that Fred Stein had had endured uh, in other patients, in in other uh, patients that had no other hope. And Unfortunately, of course, those are usually uh, the poorest patients, Uh, in this case the, the poor immigrant patients, the next one was one a fellow we know only as Mr. Zola. But this is what Coley did. He created a, a bacterial broth, which would later be known as Coley's toxins, injected Mr. Zola, carefully titrated his fever, and cured Mr. Zola's cancer. Remarkable. It became a patent medicine. In fact, this was considered the treatment for, uh, for cancer, certain cancers, especially sarcomas, for, uh, for a very brief, but very intense and very short period of time. No one knew how it worked. We really didn't understand. It was the immune system. Coley assumed, in fact, that he was just making another kind of poison. Uh, he didn't really know anything about it. Uh, but only a few years later, radium was discovered, and that seemed much more scientific than than what Coley was sometimes able to reproduce and sometimes not, because the immune system is very. If you just bomb something, if you just poison it, if you just destroy its cell members, it, that, that, you, you know it's gone. You, there were other effects, but you know it's gone. Working with the immune system, which is a real push and pull of of safety mechanisms and, and cycles and breaks, and are you sure? Or yes, I'm sure, or should we go more? I don't know, this is, it's, it's this symphony and conversation that's going on, very, very difficult to regulate, especially if you don't understand that there really is much of an immune system anyway. And coalesce toxins, uh, though they continued to be made, actually, until the 50s. Uh, soon fell out of favor. They, they actually were considered ridiculous and eventually made illegal. And it didn't help that the hospital he was practicing at, which by that point was when he'd started, uh, which was called Memorial Hospital, which came to be called eventually Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, was known as a radium hospital because the chief benefactor of that hospital happened to, have lost his wife to cancer, and also owned the majority of the radium known in the world, including the bits that Madame Curie had (laughs) had in her own collection. So they had a monopoly on that. They were going to treat cancer that way. Didn't work very well in the beginning, uh, but that's the way they went. And then, as I say, (coughs) chemotherapy came later, and Coley's toxins were were all but forgotten. And the concept that, that one What what he had found uh, was also, it was taught against, and then it was not taught at all. And in fact, uh, anyone that went to medical school 20 years ago, 10 years ago even, would probably have never heard of of any of this. Certainly would not have heard of the idea of using the immune system uh, to fight cancer, because there was really no effective treatment. So Coley disappears from the scene. the handful of, of scientists that I spoke to really relied on those glimpses and glimmers, trying to figure out what they were trying to do this whole time. This is a hundred years. You have to remember, despite dwindling funding and lack of faith and general ridicule from the from the larger scientific community, they were trying to find a way to. They were looking for a way to put the, press the gas pedal on the immune system. Surely we can wake this thing up. Was the idea, and. One of the guys I I was interviewing in this book and spent a lot of time with, a hard-living harmonica-playing PhD in Texas uh, named Jim Allison, Uh, he figured out it wasn't a gas pedal. It was a brake. We'd been looking for the wrong thing. And the fascinating part about this and the lessons that come out of this apply to so much more than cancer and so much more than the disease. Um, He wasn't looking for the gas pedal or the brake. He wasn't looking for any of it. He was just doing the science. He was only asking questions. Uh, he was only defining the unknown. Uh, and, and there were all sorts of answers that were coming at him. People were saying they knew how T cells worked. They knew how T cells recognized foreign cells. They knew all these things. And he told me about reading these papers and going, man, I'm stupid. I can't understand any of this. And then finally deciding, no, they're, they're stupid. They don't know what they're talking about. None of this makes any sense. Um, I should really question all of this. And uh, the reward, you know, d- stories of love a hero, science doesn't work that way, it really doesn't. People that find negative results are just as important as those who find positive. Every idea is built upon uh, others, its teams. Um, however, uh, you do need to put the spotlight somewhere, and uh, I think Jim Allison's receipt of the Nobel Prize, just as this book came out, Nobel Prize in Medicine, uh, was really deserved, and it was recognized by the Nobel Committee, which I just found out from Jim recently, um, also sold the book there, which was cool. Um, But recognized as a, 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 a turning point in our history with cancer. Because now that you know where to look, you'll look there. It's sort of like I liken it to. It seems obvious, but it was impossible before, and so it was considered so impossible that I, I spoke to so many scientists who were able to find data that indicated yes, the immune system and cancer are involved. There's there's a relationship. You can think of the entire history of HIV, where it was very clear that HIV patients were were developing cancers, others did not. Uh, immune suppressed patients that that, that developed cancers and tra- transplanted organs. This is a clear indication that there's something there, even if you don't understand it. But it was always ridiculed, poo-pooed. It wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't considered the mainstream, and it wasn't funded very well, and it wasn't researched very well. So this is a really, we got really lucky. Um, and, and lucky also that we had people persevering. And I think that's an incredibly important lesson for other aspects of the sciences. I, I often quote Goethe, that's a joke, I've never quoted Goethe in my life, but uh, I do once in this book because he very helpfully says we search where there is light, and there's light here now. It's being called a penicillin moment in our war against cancer, not because we've cured all cancers, although certain types of childhood cancers that were 0% survival rates are now 98% survival rates, uh, it, it, their are approvals. Uh, it's, it's so hard to keep up with this field, um, and trying to write it was like photographing a moving train, so I didn't try to give you the front edge. You want to know what the front edge is, it's changing each week. That handful of drugs I'm talking about that block those secret handshakes, there are now some 3,879 other drugs, other combinations, other handshakes, now in clinical trials working their way through. And it's the difference between, if you're trying to cure cancer, losing your car keys somewhere in New Zealand, and losing your car keys in your hotel room. We know that it's there, it has to be in the immune system, nothing else can dance, nothing else can mutate, that's the, and now we just have to un- unleash it, and we've, and we've begun to do that. And so that's something that's incredibly exciting and really, um, really useless if you don't know about it, if you don't have access to it, uh, if you can't ask those questions. And so that's why the book is written, as I say, simply at first, then with stories, uh, then with news you can understand, and ultimately the goal is empowerment. Uh, Entertainment, so that you get to the end of it, but it's about empowerment, Uh, empowering patients to not be cowed by the white coats, not be afraid to ask questions they might think are dumb, not be afraid to ask a second opinion, not ever to accept at this point, this is what I've heard over and over again, um, two important things I've heard, you know, deans of, 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 Universities tell me that, uh, you know, the, the M.D., Ph.D., oncologists, immunologists tell me and tell an audience that if they get a diagnosis and are told to go home and just get their affairs in order, there's nothing to be done, find another doctor. That's a remarkable thing to say, and that's why I made him say it. Um, uh, the, uh, but the, uh, the head of the uh, of, of the National Cancer Institute has has said the same thing and and said the same thing about reading this message. Uh, The other thing that I'm hearing now, again, the word breakthrough, just like the word cure, was used very cautiously. Uh, We've had breakthroughs all the time. It's the cover of of a magazine all the time. And we've cried wolf on breakthrough so many many times that we've really, uh, we've gone numb to it. Uh, This is different. And I had to confirm over and over again that in fact is that different and that it's legitimate to, uh, to use, use that word as it is cure. And I'm told by the physicians I speak to that if they can't cure their patients today, the goal is to keep them alive long enough to take advantage of what's next and around the corner. And that's changing all the time. We got a triple negative uh, breast cancer uh, approval for an immunotherapy three weeks ago, I think it is now. Um, we, uh, I just saw some really exciting data on pancreatic cancer. I mean, things that you've never, never imagined. And we, there won't be enough time here to go into, an immunotherapy is anything that unleashes the immune system, that acts on the immune system, that allows it to do the job. And there are many different forms of that. It can be blocking those handshakes. It can be making a T-cell that only has eyes for the one clove. You figure out what clove you're looking for, make one of those, it can be combining and then making an army of those, um, like a robo-army, that's called CAR-T, if you ever hear of it. Um, it, it can be uh, basically chaining, uh, making it so that the, that the immune molecule is chained more readily to the cancer, because what we've discovered now is also, it's not a matter of saying chemotherapy bad, immunotherapy good, we, we were, used what we could, when we, when we had it. What we've discovered now is chemotherapy When it destroys those cancer cells, it's like a million wanted posters circulating in the bloodstream. Do that, plus taking the brakes off the immune system, and now you've got a million, you've got an immune system that can read those handbills and ramp up to a clone army, and we're finding that that's exponentially better. So this is a really exciting time. And uh, if I'm going to take any questions, I probably should have quit about uh, ten minutes ago. But but that's the general arc of of this book. And and uh, I appreciate you taking time to hear something about it.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.